Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers. And as you know, each week, twice a week, we bring you brand new cutting-edge histories from around the world. And I mean it. From around the world, we have a growing global listenership. Hello to all of you. And we want to make sure we have geographically representative, interesting, brand new histories from around the world of global conflicts that have shaped the world we live in today. And of course, we bring that right up to date to help us understand the conflicts that continue to simmer globally. But once a week, I like to dig deep into the History Hit archive to pull out an episode that I think deserves a little more attention. And this one is on the Opium Wars with British military historian Mark Simner. Now, this topic is rarely taught in British schools, but it is taught across China. It is important to understand because it explains some of the reasons why resentment might still linger in China today. I studied for a period in Hong Kong. I can tell you those debates in the history classes and the international politics and security classes were serious, to say the least. The shadows of the Opium War are cast far and wide across China. Of course, Hong Kong itself is a legacy of the Opium Wars. So, The Opium Wars are a critical part of Chinese history, and they are vital to us understanding why China is how it is today, and why it is formed the way it is today, from dynasty to republic. A vital history. Now, remember, you can follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at JamesRogersHistory, and now even on TikTok at JamesRogersHistory. We are everywhere. You cannot escape us. Also, feel free to pop us a five-star review with one click on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts. It helps us get out there to everyone who loves history. But now, here is Mark Simner on the Opium Wars. Mark, thank you very much for coming to the podcast. This is a story that a lot of people say every school child should know, but this, ironically, is a story that every school child knows in China and probably everyone should know in the UK as well. Absolutely. And um, that was actually one of the main reasons why I decided to write this particular book, some of my, my previous works. Um, I actually look for areas where there isn't an awful lot out there or it's something that's not really sort of um, thought about uh, in the West, let alone the, well, alone the UK. Um, but as you say, in China... It's um, it's still very much uh, a sore subject in, in many ways. So, uh, yeah, it's a fascinating subject, but one that's unfortunately quite forgotten in the West. 
What sources do you use um, for a book like this? I mean, are you, are you able to find really good Chinese sources or is this quite constructed from, from Western sources? I have to admit, it's, it's probably more Western sources. Um, China is beginning to open up more now for their archives and, 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 and other areas of information that they have. But uh, it's still a little bit, little bit closed. And, of course, there's always a language barrier as well, because, unfortunately, that's one, one, one language, unfortunately, I can't, uh, I can't read. But uh, it's an area that I think in the future, people who go on to research it will find more and more from, from Chinese archives um, beginning to, to dribble out. And that's certainly that hopefully will give a more balanced view. But, yeah, I've, I've tried where possible to use known Chinese sources, but, uh, you know, a lot of it is, is, is more Western, to be honest. Tell us. It's one of the most distinctively named series of wars in history. Why are these known as the Opium Wars? Well, it was largely fought over the opium trade. There's a little bit of a debate amongst historians whether it was opium per se or whether it was just about trade in general. But uh, it's safe to say that the most lucrative trade for Britain with China at the, at the time in the 19th century was, was opium. It was something in big demand in China. It's something that the uh, British in India had huge stocks of. They could, they could produce this stuff, uh, grow it in Bengal. And also there was a big trade deficit um, in, in, in China's favour previously and Britain and, and other Western powers looked at ways of uh, changing that imbalance. And of course opium was, was the answer and it was a highly lucrative trade which I think at, uh, at its peak made up something like 10% of the Treasury's money or something like that. Of course, we bought a lot of tea from China and effectively we swapped opium for tea. Tell me about China in the beginning of the 19th century. How powerful was it? How large was its economy? Was it suffering by that stage with, in comparison to the Western industrialising powers? It's certainly beginning to be left behind, technologically speaking. Once we enter the Industrial Revolution, I think the West really do begin to, to sort of advance much more quickly than China. Uh, certainly, I, I, I think it's been said that by the time you get to the first opium war, in terms of military technology, the historians have said that China was something like 200 years behind. So the West very quickly, once you get into the sort of early 19th century, is beginning to, to go way ahead of China. Because China, you know, it had been quite a powerful, powerful empire. And I think before the First Opium War, it could still hold its own against the West. But, you know, things rapidly changed once you get into sort of the 1820s, 1830s, and the, the balance was definitely going in the favour of the West. Why was there a big trade imbalance? I mean, what, what was it that Britain and the Europeans wanted from or were in buying from China? Tea was the biggest import from China, and you know how much the British love the tea. Porcelain, silks, very, very highly sought after. The problem was China didn't want anything that we had. So we were, we were pumping out textiles, cottons, woolens and things like that, and the Chinese just weren't interested. They did like pretty little clocks and things that we, we could produce in this country, but unfortunately not in the sort of quantities that would... Uh, to balance the trade. So we had to pay for these goods using silver. So it was a massive drain on, on silver from um, the West, from Britain and so on. And that, of course, led to a, a massive trade imbalance. And why was opium popular in China and, and not as popular elsewhere? Why didn't they sell opium in other parts of the world? Well, of course, opium in the West was actually used for medicinal purposes. Um, in the 19th century, it was quite quite common to prescribe opium as a painkiller. I think laudanum, I think it was called, sort of opium that you sort of mixed uh, with alcohol as a tincture and you, you could take it for uh, everything from headaches to diarrhoea, all sorts of, of things like that. And it was also used as an energy drink, believe it or not. I think some workers in the north of England used to take something called elevation. But it was never really used 
in a big way in, say, written in a recreational sense. There were those that did. Uh, if you take William Wilberforce, who obviously was a dominant sort of um, anti-slave trade um, um, figure, he originally took opium to treat his gout, and then he continued to take it for the next 40 years. But there was never that big addiction in, say, Britain and elsewhere in Europe or even in America for opium. Once you go to China, again, they've been using it for medicinal purposes. They use it as a painkiller as well. They believed it was an aphrodisiac, so they were buying it in small quantities. But when you get sort of into the 1820s, a lot of Chinese are beginning to get addicted to it, and that addiction is spreading. And and as more demand for opium there is in China, the more opium that's flowing into China, the more people begin to take it. And it goes from being a, a, a recreational drug used by a small number of people to being, you know, used by millions. So opium grown in Bengal is being shipped to China to buy tea, which is then going back to Europe. Uh, why did the Chinese authorities decide to clamp down on this? Basically, they tolerated it to a point previously because, you know, they could tax it, they, there was tax on trade, they could make money out of it. There was a lot of corruption in, in sort of Chinese trade and Chinese officials at the time. So there was a lot of people making money out of the trade. So initially they, they, they sort of tolerated it, but... It's beginning to bite on society. There's, there's people dying of this drug. It's affecting soldiers. It's affecting court officials. Uh, I mean, you know, opium's taken from the ruling class right down to, to, to the average person on the street. But it's beginning to have a negative effect on society. It's beginning to hurt, harm people. And it gets to a point where the, the emperor says, enough's enough, we need to climb down on it. And why does that lead to conflict? Well, as you can imagine, if they're... We, well, I mean, the trade... With China and opium was illegal. It was mainly illegal in the sort of, uh, well, there was a number of edicts that were passed to make it illegal. They sort of, when you get to the 19th century, it is, it's firmly illegal. And what the, what the British did, rather than ship it direct to China, they actually sold it off at auction in India to country traders, country ships, who were technically independent of the, say, the British East India Company, but they did operate under licence. So they could go to China and on trading voyages and find places they could sell it. And then a whole sort of uh, mechanism grows up with Chinese smugglers or take it off the British and then uh, and sell it inland. So it's, um, yeah, it, 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 it's technically illegal, but it, it is the predominant trade of China. So how do they try and stop it flowing into the country? Right. So all trade with the West um, and America through China has to go through Canton. Um, they introduced in, in 1757 the Canton system, and basically what that is, all trade is restricted. There's no free trade in China. Everything has to go through the port city of Canton, which is now just is now a giant mega city just inland from Hong Kong. That's right. And the British are obviously, you know, they hate these restrictions, and equally the Chinese hate the fact that opium has been smuggled through through Canton. So they send a Chinese official by the name of Lin Zizhu to um, Canton in 1839 and he's he's not like the other Chinese officials he's, he's incorruptible he doesn't want to be bribed he he's genuinely wants to stamp out the opium trade so what he does he takes very very active measures against the British uh, and, and other foreign merchants and he also um, uh, rounds up Chinese opium smugglers he has them imprisoned he has them executed tens of thousands of, of Chinese addicts had their opium pipes confiscated from them and then he comes, comes to blows with the British and he basically says, right, all trades halted. If you're going to trade in opium, all your other trades halted. So we can't get tea, 
we can't get porcelain, we can't get silks, we can't get everything else that we want. Uh, so it causes quite a big problem. So what Lean does, he ceases all trade and he demands that all the Western merchants hand over their stocks of opium uh, and then he'll allow legal trade to resume. And in the end, they did hand over something in excess of 20,000 chests of opium. Now, a chest of opium has something like 120 to 140 pounds of opium. So 20,000 chests, this is a serious, serious amount of money. They hand it over to avert war. Now, the Charles Elliott, who was the chief superintendent of trade at the time in China, he promised the British merchants that the British government would compensate them for uh, their loss. So they hand over their uh, opium and Lin then takes it away and destroys it. Of course, the British government back home, hang on a minute, we, we, we haven't said we're going to compensate for it, but then they have to honour that and it costs them a lot of money. So as you can see, there's a lot of fiction um, building up. And, and Lean continues with these measures. He, you know, he, he pushes the um, sort of the um, Western traders to to comply more to the Canton system and uh, and so on. And uh, it leads to a lot of fiction. And uh, it ultimately, uh, Britain goes to war. And what are Britain's war aims against the Chinese Empire in the First Opium War? Firstly, legalise the trade in opium. It's highly lucrative. It's, that's got to be legalised. Um, secondly, they want to um, open up more ports because the British obviously are very much into free trade. That's what they advocate abroad. That's what they try to, to get other, uh, other countries to um, uh, buy into. And also they want to install a permanent ambassador at Peking. You know, and, and, and that in itself is a monumental task because the Chinese don't view foreigners as equals. So to admit an ambassador to their capital city their northern capital city, that's, that's, that's a big ask. And where does most of the fighting take place? Tell me about the nature of the fighting in the First Opium War. Well, a great, great, great imbalance. Uh, I think that the British went to war with just a, a few thousand British and, and Indian troops, whereas China could put in the field some like 200,000. But because the British have major technological advances over the Chinese, you know, they, they can, you know, win battles and, and whatever with, with relatively few, with few troops. One, one of the biggest advantages the British had at that time, of course, was modern steamers, steamships, OK? They're just beginning to enter service. And uh, one in particular was called the Nemesis, and it had a very shallow draft. So it could get into, into creeks, it could get into watercourses where traditionally big, bigger warships, big wooden warships couldn't go. And it's armed with modern artillery, it's got Congo rockets and so on, and it causes a heck of a lot of damage to the Chinese Navy and it can bomb, bombard um, Chinese positions onshore as well. And it's so effective, this one ship, that the Chinese actually nickname it the Devil Ship um, because it causes so much damage. And again, you know, Chinese soldiers, a lot of them are armed with spears, bows, ancient weapons. Some do have firearms, but they're old, old you know, firelocks and things like that. Whereas the British, they've got... Um, you know, up-to-date um, muskets, rifled muskets and so on. And um, the, the, the firepower that the British had over the Chinese was devastating. So is it a war mainly fought, though, at sea and along a, a literal campaign? So amphibious assaults, rivers and, and inshore? Pretty much, yeah. So what the British do, they, they go from city, they bombard fort after fort, they go from city to city and literally just trying to bully the Chinese into, into um, giving up, which, of course, eventually they did. And um, once the British took Nanking, that was enough for the Chinese emperor and they, they sued for peace and, of course, signed the, the Treaty of Nanking.
Have you had an existential crisis while taking out recycling? Do you look at your shopping and wonder if you should be growing it yourself? And why is everyone banging on about saving the bees? If so, then don't worry because you are not alone. I've been there too. I'm Jimmy Doherty and on my new podcast on Jimmy's Farm, I sit down with well-known faces and some of the smartest green minds to learn how they try and sometimes fail to be kinder to the planet and live closer to nature. Listen and subscribe to On Jimmy's Farm Now, wherever you get your podcasts, a new podcast from History Hit. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now, explain, where is Nanking? It's, oh, good question. It's sort of um, along the coast, northern, northern China. And so Nanking was obviously an important port, and so the Chinese just couldn't, couldn't justify the continuing bombardment of all their coastal cities. Didn't make sense. Basically, yes. You know, they've got a lot of internal strife as well. You know, the emperor's having to deal with internal unrest uh, and things like that. So, um, you know, the next epis do, do foreign troops march on Peking and... Um, that was something that he, you know, they they just didn't want, and um, they, they they literally just had enough. Okay, so the, the the Treaty of Nanking. What do the Brits get out of the Chinese? Pretty much four additional ports, uh, four additional ports to to Canton to conduct trade. They don't legalize the opium trade. That still remains illegal. They um, it was something that the Chinese just just refused. They they wouldn't uh, even talk about it. But because trade resumes, it, it, that, that that's going to continue anyway. 
So what's the mood in Britain? I mean, they're on the way to defeating Mughal India. Now they've turned their attention to one of the other great empires, which has dominated the world for centuries. What, what, what sort of feelings were stirred up in Britain? A lot of rich people were actually against the trade in opium. Um, they did have sympathy with the Chinese. Um, it wasn't something that um, a lot of people in Britain thought we should be doing. Um, that said, a lot of people were also ignorant of the trade. It wasn't something that was particularly publicised. Um, and the more, the more aware um, tend to be um, sort of anti. However, um, as, as things changed, um, as, we, as they approached war, the Chinese, you know, the way that they treated British diplomats or foreign diplomats... Um, and then, of course, the, the seizure of, of, of opium and the destruction of it, that opinion in Britain shifted. And, of course, that then gave the government more of a mandate then to take the steps that they did. So they've got more ports to trade with, the trade's continuing. Why do we get a second opium war? Well, once the Treaty of Nanking signed, trade begins to expand. The British want more. And the Chinese are dragging their feet. They don't really want to adhere to the Treaty of Nanking, which you can't blame them. And the British obviously sense this. So we get, we get into a situation where um, the British want more, the Chinese want to give less. And um, again, um, you know, the, the, the Chinese start to look sort of clamping down on, 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 on opium. But what the British needed to, to force that extra trade, to gain, they wanted more open ports, they wanted to access Chinese inland markets, because at the moment they were restricted to the coastal regions. They, um, they they need a pretext to go to war. And that came in 1856 with a ship called the Arrow, because the Second Opium War is also known as the Arrow War in some circles. And the Arrow was a ship that had um, been involved in piracy. It had been captured by the Chinese uh, Navy. It was then sold off, and it was eventually, I think it changed hands several times, but eventually bought by a Chinese merchant residing at Hong Kong. Now, what the British did, they allowed Chinese ships to um, be registered at Hong Kong under a British flag so they could get the same rights and everything that the Treaty Nanking granted British ships. And so they'd have a Chinese crew and they'd have a, a British captain. And in this case, he was a guy called Thomas Kennedy. Uh, and Thomas Kennedy was on, on board another ship at the time in Canton Harbour. Um, his ship was anchored and uh, he was over there cup of tea or whatever it was with, with, with fellow captains. And he watched some Chinese marines board his ship. And when they boarded his ship, they arrested all the Chinese crew and, and seized the vessel. He went aboard, tried to, to treat with them what's going on, and basically, you know, they're, they're saying this, this ship's involved in piracy. And it was known previously it was involved in piracy. Um, but Captain Kennedy said, well, no, it's, it's a British ship, it's British registered, it's got British colours. In reality, the registration of the ship had actually expired, so it was no longer um, British registered. And there's a little bit of an argument as to whether it was flying British colours, what was in port or not. Um, but from, from my research, I, I suspect it wasn't, uh, and, and, and so the Chinese felt they could board it, and then some of the crew they believed were actually Chinese pirates. That then, of course, caused a lot of uh, upset in Hong Kong, uh, back home in Britain, and that gave um, the British the sort of pretext, as it were, to, to resume as hostilities. Because um, I think you could, you could probably argue that there's a, the first Opium War and the second Opium War was probably, um, there's just a break in between one big war, if you like, and, and indeed some historians have argued that. Personally, I think it's two distinct wars, but they're fought over the same reasons. And, of course, opium itself, the issue that the British had with opium, with the Chinese, that was never resolved at the end of the first war. So it just continued to bubble away until hostilities resumed. 
You mentioned Hong Kong. We should just quickly talk about the state of Hong Kong. When did the British come into possession of that island? Well, Hong Kong was ceded to the British um, at the end of the First Opium War. And um, they began, obviously began to develop that into um, a trading centre. The British had looked to, to gain a piece of territory or a piece of land outside, away from Canton, that they could use for that purpose. And, uh, of course, Hong Kong was, was a result of, of, of demands at the end of the um, First Opium War. Right, so we've got a second opium war. How does this differ from the first? In terms of fighting, not a lot really. Um, it was probably more ferocious. The battles were probably a bit bigger and the casualties were certainly a lot higher. British casualties are relatively low. I think in the first opium war, British Indian casualties were something like less than 75 killed and less than 450 wounded. It's a little bit more than that once we get to the second second opium war. But Chinese casualties are just... Huge. We don't really know how many Chinese were killed or wounded. Um, you, when you look at the descriptions of the battles and from the estimates from the commanders and, and, and other soldiers who were there, they do vary widely. So you've got to take Chinese casualties with a pinch of assault. But it's estimated between eighteen to 20,000 Chinese were either killed or wounded in the first Opium War and up to 30,000 in the second. And again, how, how are these people being killed? Is it shore bombardment by shallow draft British gunboats? Is it landing marines on distant shores? Is it naval engagements? What is it? Pretty much, yeah. It's pretty much a, a, like almost a replay of the First War. And the British will attack forts. They will um, land troops to take cities, key cities, and they keep pushing their way further and further north up towards Peking. Of course, obviously, they've got to go over land to get to Peking. Um, but as they, as you know, they... they the tactic worked in the first Opium War, so they, they, they did the same again. And uh, how long has it gone for, and what was the result? Uh, second Opium War was about four years. You have to remember there was a bit of an interlude because the uh, Indian Mutiny, obviously a lot of troops that were destined for China were diverted to India to, to suppress that rebellion. So that there was a bit of a, a, bit of a break. Um, however, so, you know, uh, four years, and then um, the result was that the... Um, the Chinese emperor at the time actually fled Peking as he knew Allied troops were approaching and um, left his brother to, to negotiate. Um, and then they signed the uh, Convention of Peking. Now, for, as somebody who loves naval history, this is always so fascinating because this is British military power projected by the Navy, like deep inland, right? Because they're, they're going along these rivers and canals, aren't they? Chinese at the time, they, they, they have a lot of rivers, uh, other water courses that they use like highways and, and that's how they transport uh, food supplies, other goods. It's also how they collect taxes and things like that. So it's a, it's a bit like a road infrastructure, if you like. It's very, very important to them. And what the British do, they choke that off. So uh, Peking, and, and uh, they, they begin to get more and more cut off from the rest of China. So choking that, 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 those important waterways... You know, they greatly uh, sort of um, forced the, the Emperor's hand, really. And the you know, British gunboats advancing hundreds and hundreds of miles away from the sea, but, but on these giant arteries, these river arteries. Yes, again, shallow drafts, steamships, they now have the ability to do um, the, these sort of things. And, you know, the Chinese have got um, ancient-style, what they call war junks, which are lightly armed vessels, which just don't match for, for Royal Navy warships. And, you know, I mean a single Royal Navy steamer could take on 30 junks and sink them all. So what, um, and then there's the most infamous event, one that resounds, echoes to the present day, particularly with Chinese people. What happens as the Brits approach Peking? Well, 
Well, it's the British and the French, because yeah, the French are allied uh, with the British in the Second Opium War. They they reach Peking, and um, one of the first things the soldiers do is loot the the so-called Summer Palace, which is like the, the one of the residences of, of the Chinese Emperor, where he conducts a lot of his a lot of his business. So very very important to to the Emperor, very very important to Chinese people. There is an incident where some high-profile British prisoners are taken and they're not treated very well. Some of the British um, and Indian troops that are taken are also executed, um, their bodies are mutilated, some pretty nasty things that, that have happened. And Lord Elgin, who was um, sort of in charge, if you like, of, 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 of the British campaign, um, he was so incensed by what happened that I, he wanted to punish the Chinese and, and, and do something that would leave uh, a mark there for a very long time to come. Um, and he mulled over what to do. And he, he actually um, promised Prince Gong, who was the brother of the Chinese emperor, that he wouldn't actually destroy Peking or anything inside Peking. So what he did, he decided to destroy the summer palaces which were technically outside the city walls. So he chose that because he was fulfilling his promise to Prince Gong. I suspect the Chinese saw it a little bit differently to that, but he gave the orders to, to, to burn the palaces down. And, of course, you know, that's something which a lot of historians today look back and, you know, it's sort of cultural vandalism almost. It's, 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 it's quite a horrific event, really. So he's had an awful lot of stick for that. And, of course, the Chinese haven't forgot it. Yeah, they're still very upset about it. So I, I still find this extraordinary, this, these British, British and French empires who, you know, a few generations before, 100 years before, had been, you know, supplicants to the mighty Chinese empire. They're now occupying the capital, destroying some of the finest buildings. They've, top, they've effectively toppled the mighty Chinese empire. This is an amazing moment in history. Absolutely. And the, the Opium Wars are actually regarded in China as, as, as the beginning of, of modern China because although... So the, the way China, Imperial China had been for the last thousand, 2,000 years or whatever it was, didn't come to an end until about 1911. It started that process. So this really was, the Opium was really was the, the sort of the end of, of, of ancient China. The, the Allies inflicted upon them treaties which were known as the Unequal Treaties because they heavily favoured the British, the victors, and not the Chinese. And, you know, it takes the Chinese 100 years to renegotiate these treaties, you, you get to World War Two before these, some of these treaties and some of the effects of these treaties are finally um, got rid of, and, 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 then, and the Chinese call it the, the century of humiliation. So it really is the end of old China that defeated his mighty imperial empire, more economically than militarily, I would, I would argue, and then sort of the beginning of, 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 of modern China. After the Second Opium War, had the institution of empire within China, had, had the traditional hierarchy basically been terminally damaged? I think so. The, the, the emperor at the time who fled at the, at the end of the Second Opium War, he, he died shortly afterwards. And Britain never occupied China like it did other parts of the empire, but it was able to continue to exert a lot of influence on China for many years to come. And in fact, the opium trade peaks, you know, around 1879, um, I think at the, sort of the end of the this Second Opium War, you're talking about 40,000 chests a year being exported to, to China. But by 1879, it peaks at almost 90,000. So that's a huge amount of, amount of, of the drug getting into, into, into the country. Interestingly, 
British trade in, in opium to China actually doesn't stop until we get into the First World War. But from 1879, 1880, it starts to decline. And the reason it actually starts to decline is not because the Chinese are, are taking less opium, but they're beginning to grow it at home. So they have less need for imports, and, and, and as their own cultivation, their own opium production gets bigger and bigger and bigger, they actually um, start buying less and less from Britain. And, of course, there's, there's opposition as well in Britain to, to, to the opium trade. When you start getting towards the end of the Victorian era, there's a, an awful lot of opposition. There's a lot of vocal people that are trying to get the trade um, suppressed. And, of course, by, as I say, by the time of the First World War, um, they, they seized trade in opium with China. Mark, thanks so much for talking about this remarkably important bit of history. The book is called? Uh, the Lion and the Dragon, Britain's Opium Wars with China. Go and get it, everyone. Thank you. Done, thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.